Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. You're very welcome to the first Talking to Change and Motivation Living podcast with myself, Glenn Hines, and my great friend, Sebastian Kaplan. Hi, Seb. Hey, Glenn, and hello, everybody. Thank you for, for joining us. Yeah, welcome to the, what's essentially is a transatlantic partnership with myself based in Derry in Northern Ireland. And Seb, where are you? I'm in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, United States. Okay, so we're talking over the internet and recording this uh, conversation today really about motivation events. So why are we doing this, Seb? What are we at? Well, this is uh, an idea that developed over many weeks, I think. We've, we've talked about ways of uh, providing information about motivational interviewing uh, to a, a broader audience and, and for us to collaborate on this. And, um, and we, we sort of landed on the idea of a podcast thinking that it would be a, a unique opportunity to over the course of several weeks and months, perhaps, to be able to share ideas about motivational interviewing, share ideas from both the two of us, but also from a number of guests from around the world that uh, have dedicated their careers to the practice and the teaching and the research on motivational interviewing. And uh, we hope that the audience those listeners to our podcast uh, will certainly find it interesting and uh, enriching and helpful for them, either as professionals or perhaps in their own personal lives. Our hope is to provide information in a way that someone who's never heard about motivational interviewing before could find it very valuable and important learning experience. So right through from the curious to the expert, we're trying to offer something across the range of these podcasts for individuals who have come along just with a curiosity, uh, with an interest, who've heard of AMI or motivational interviewing, and uh, and then there's other people who are maybe already practicing AMI, or, and, and, and then some of our colleagues from the Motivational Interviewing Network, the Minties, really get an opportunity to hear from other Minties from across the world talking about their own experience of practicing or teaching motivational interviewing or integrating motivational interviewing alongside of other things such as CBT or in different disciplines at criminal justice. So quite the range we're, we're, we're throwing the net wide. That's right. Yeah, That's right. Yeah, Loft, yeah. Lofty goals, but uh, hopefully it'll be uh, uh, an interesting process and rewarding for, for all you listeners. Yeah, so it's, it's already quite exciting because we know that we're going to get a chance to speak with one of the architects of motivation, Bill Miller. And we know we're going to be speaking to a friend in Australia, Stan Stendhal, talking about compassion and, and its place in the spirit and much broader the integration of compassion and motivation interviewing and helping other people change. And, you know, we've we've targeted a couple other people we're waiting to hear back from in relation to future podcasts as well. So we're really quite excited about what it is this might turn into. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just I'm going to I was just being curious there as you know, people are maybe wondering, who are you? So maybe maybe you just want to start by telling us a bit about yourself then, Seb? Sure, gladly. Well, um, 
So I'm a clinical psychologist and associate professor in the Department of Psychiatry, as well as the Department of Family Medicine at the Wake Forest University School of Medicine in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, United States. And so I'm primarily a clinician slash educator, I would say. Those are the two main uh, worlds that I live in professionally. Um, as far as the, the clinical work that I do, I focus mainly on working with teenagers and young adults uh, and their families um, and trying to help these individuals uh, overcome any number of, of life challenges. Uh, there isn't a particular you know, psychiatric condition that I specialize in. It's really more focused on that age range. Um, I see clients in inpatient settings uh, at our hospital here, uh, in outpatient settings as well, on college campus um, here locally. So uh, just a, a variety of places where I, variety of places where I, um, where I'll see clients. Um, as far as the, the teaching and, and training part of my job, uh, there are, um, I, I would say that the main people I work with are medical students, uh, as well as psychiatry residents, uh, do, do a fair amount of teaching, training, and motivational interviewing and other topics. Um, and, you know, it occasionally we'll provide some workshops for, uh, in, the, in the community uh, for a, a variety of, of healthcare providers. Uh, so that's, uh, you know, my, my current role is, is you know, that, that's sort of it in a nutshell. Yeah. I, I'll occasionally have done some research projects, but, but mainly as clinician educator. Yes, you, you seem like you're a busy man and, and, and quite a varied uh, experience throughout the day working with individuals, their families, as well as working with other professionals who are coming into contact with, with people with psychiatric disorders as well. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, no, it's it's a uh, it, it does keep me busy, and but it, it's really exciting to be able to work in, in just a variety of settings with a lot of different uh, with a lot of different people, and, and certainly the teaching component is is quite enriching as well. Yeah. So it sounds like it's, it's it, that that motivation interviewing sits alongside of what you're doing, working, and I'm sure the audience is interested to recognize that that motivation intervention sits in the psychiatric world, it sits in the adolescent world, it sits in the family intervention world, it sits in the education world as well. So it's, and I suppose that's part of what we're hoping to do over the series of podcasts is really explore the different opportunities for motivation intervention to be of benefit to individuals and groups as practitioners and, and their clients. Right, and that seems to be uh, a theme over the years of, of MI really sort of growing and expanding to, to different worlds, uh, as you put it. Um, uh, this approach, which started in the world of uh, substance use treatment, in particular treatment uh, for people with uh, difficulties around alcohol use, uh, really is, has expanded into uh, just about any profession or any uh, context where somebody is considering a change in their life. And, uh, and MI has, has become a, a fairly standard way of, of trying to help people through that, through that process. Yeah, and, and I know that in my own background, it was, it, I was, when I was working as an addiction practitioner, uh, that's when I was first introduced to motivation interviewing. And, and, and certainly the idea was that 
it was an alcohol intervention and uh, it expanded then into the idea of well if it works with alcohol does it work with drugs um, and so for the first 15 years of my professional practice I was working as, as a social worker in addictions and it felt it it was the new utopian way you know it, and, and and for a lot of people it 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 resonated and I know that it resonated very powerfully for me because we had grown up still working with forms of what I understood to be almost like the Minnesota model where it was confrontation was the approach that individuals with, with addictions needed to be confronted with a reality. And certainly there was lots of people in the treatment centres that I was working with were actually benefiting from that type of intervention. But on reflection, I think what what it was that was working most, rather than the, the confrontation itself, it was the relationship that the practitioner had with the patient during right. the confrontation, that there, that there was a containment, that there was an actual desire in the practitioner who valued the individual with the substance misuse issue, that the confrontation wasn't a punitive, although it, it could be used or could be experienced as a punitive intervention. and. Um, and I think that it was that that didn't sit for me because of the nature and the values of myself. Where, so when I was introduced to motivational interviewing, which was has its origins in person-centeredness, a very Rogerian concept alongside of some cognitive work, that it felt much more person-centered. That that from a social worker and a counselling background, that it felt much easier to integrate into my conversations with people to help them change. Mm -hmm. um, and, 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 and I'm sure that you notice it yourself, a lot of people that I've talked to here around motivation, it, it felt like it's, it sang a tune that resonated with something that was true to them. Right, right. A very, very common experience when you hear people's stories about what first drew them to MI and, and certainly what you described there of being in the setting where where you you were you and your colleagues were trying to be helpful and you were doing what you thought was best or what the literature stated or or what the, the theoretical models were at the time were were encouraging people to do and and while uh, while it certainly uh, was helpful for some people um, it seems like you kind of kind of were boiling down to sort of the key elements that were, were ultimately helpful for people when using confrontational models. And, and so you speak to the, the relationship in particular as, as sort of the key uh, foundational component of that work. Yeah, and, it, and, and I think that that was something that came out of the project match work that these different interventions, CBT, MET, a, a variation of motivation interviewing, and the 12-step facilitation program that each one of them showed that they were effective in supporting people with, with alcohol-related problems, but what was surprising was when they mined down into information, it seemed that it was the it was the relationship the practitioner had to the intervention that also had an impact on the outcome, that the MI-spirited people, when they were doing the MET groups, had seemed to have more success in those groups, the CBT people who were who were married to the CBT principles when they led a CBT group, more people made progress. So that was that was intriguing for me that 
that it was the the relationship the practitioner had to the intervention that they were using ultimately had an impact on the outcomes for the, the clients or the patients. Mm -hmm. Right. And and you're you're using some uh, important terms there uh, that we'll we'll certainly talk more about. Like you talked about the MI spirit. Um, so for those of you who are unfamiliar, what we'll be discussing the MI spirit a bit later in this episode and, and in much more detail in, in future episodes. Um, and and I suppose it's it's worthwhile just to say about CBT sort of those people who might not know what CBT is, that's the cognitive behavioral therapy, which is, uh, is something that has, um, is often used in conjunction with motivational interviewing to help people with any number of, of uh, life challenges. Right. And, and so Glenn, we've, we've talked a bit about your, your history and sort of early um, exposure to MI. Maybe you could share a bit about what, who you are uh, now and what, yeah. what are some of the things yeah. that you do with yeah. Well, I'm Glenn, Glenn Hines, and I'm, I'm based in uh, a town in the northwest of Ireland, uh, Derry. Um, my own background is as a psychology at college, came back to Northern Ireland from England and started working in mental health uh, in traditional daycare, um, where, you know, a lot of your, a lot of people were who had, who had traditionally been in long-stay hospitals were being reintroduced into the community. Uh, but what was noticed was young people around the ages of 18 to 30 weren't really interested in spending time uh, in essentially arts and crafts type environments. So I, I moved from that traditional daycare setting into a, quite a novel project where we were supporting individuals who had been diagnosed with psychosis and more particularly schizophrenia, uh, offering them a social intervention to offering 37 and a half hours over a seven day week and really just offering them engagement in the community. While I was doing that, I was, I was fortunate enough to get some training with an organization in Belfast called Nexus who, who offered support to adult survivors of childhood sex abuse and had some wonderful training with them and counseling interventions. And, and I suppose that's where the person-centered part of me was first ignited or it was the the person's person-centered nature of who I am was fanned, and I understood what I was doing. So, when I eventually then trained as a social worker and was introduced to motivation doing, the crossover was seamless. It you know it it it, it like, like I say this the, the tune was already in in me and that that, that was motivation doing. So, I I spent another ten years then working in. Uh, addictions, either in alcohol and substance misuse, or, and then later back in Derry here as a drug therapist. And having trained in motivation, doing I then had a chance to go away and train. About 12 years ago, 12, 13 years ago, I trained as a trainer. And, uh, and about 12 years, 10 years ago, I, I, I'd left the trust and I'm now primarily teaching motivation doing to health and social care practitioners and management teams in relation to supporting individuals make decisions about their health, their well-being, and their lifestyles that are consistent with motivation as, as, as individuals within organizations, but also taking care of themselves when they're patients or clients. Right. Wow, quite a journey. And, um, and, and really some early experiences working with people that 
uh, I imagine we're going through some really difficult times and um, who, who also had some really challenging early relationship uh, experiences. And, and so that that's, you say that's where you really started or where your, um, your interests in person-centered approaches were sort of ignited and fanned at that point. Yeah, it, 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 when I was working with the, the young people with the diagnosis of schizophrenia, that it was very clear that our task was not to cure the schizophrenia, but there were things that, that were influencing these individuals' ex, uh, experiences of, of episodes. And it was clear that, that stress was often one of the triggers. So we were doing social things, but we were, we were offering interventions in a very informal way. And what was interesting was that as I was being trained as a counsellor in, in, in person-centred approach, that it, it allowed me to be conscious of the type of conversations that I was having, so being uh, purposeful in the questions I would ask. Listen, learning to listen in a, in a more particular way and guiding questions and information towards the client coming to insights that, are, that would ultimately help them make decisions about how to take care, take care of themselves in situations that previously had been difficult for them. Mm -hmm. Right. So even before coming to motivational interviewing, uh, you had already begun a journey of learning about how to engage someone in a conversation, a particular kind of conversation that was designed to, uh, I guess, engage them in thinking about their own life and in the direction of their life and, and how it might be different for them. Yeah, and, I, and you know, looking back on it from now and, have, and my experience of working with other practitioners, I think that's what brings most if not all helpers to the helping game. It's that desire that's within us to be of benefit to other people. And it's uh, that desire to, to, have, to use our knowledge, our skills, and our willingness to be available to people for their benefit. Again, with hindsight, I recognize how raw much of what I was as a young practitioner, what I was doing, uh, with the intention of being helpful, I now look. I now understand that there are things that that by doing them differently today, and I suppose as as a work in progress, I am continuing to learn about the human condition and more particularly the what works in human relationships, mm -hmm. as in, uh, or the helping relationships more particularly that ultimately is benefit to the other person. Right. Right. I mean, all all helpers in any setting or any field is they're they're drawn with the idea of, of being helpful and um, and and so yeah, motivational interviewing has has this sort of attraction there that it it provides people with um, with fairly uh, easy to access. It's, it's not a it's not a especially complex model it's it's a it's a model that a lot of people are naturally drawn to and 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 resonate with um i you know my experiences i think were somewhat similar in that i i didn't my my uh 
you know, my path in, in learning about motivational interviewing and becoming a practitioner of it didn't start with a workshop in motivational interviewing. Right. By any means, I, um, I would sort of chart my origins with early experiences in college while I was, you know, in, in my early 20s. Um, I, I would say it really started as a basketball coach. I was coaching young people in, in, um, the, in the area schools that I was living near. And, um, you know, it was, it was really drawn, not only teaching these kids how to play, but also um, you know, just getting to getting to know them and, and them sort of reaching out to me as this, um, as a bit of a, a mentor figure. And, and so those are my first memories of having helping conversations in an untrained way, but still trying to sort out for myself, you know, how can I be helpful to this person, both on the basketball court, but also just as in life in general. Um, and I, I was also very much influenced by a, a teacher that I worked with uh, during an internship in college. This was a, a teacher who, who was in a fifth grade classroom. So for those who don't know the grade system, it was about 10 year old, um, 10 to 11 year old students. And um, it was at the beginning of the school year and we were, I was there to help support a group of children that had, uh, had special needs and, and they were being integrated into a, what we call a regular education classroom setting. And as we were talking about the, these children, uh, before I even met them, uh, I was so struck by this teacher who thought so highly of, of these of these kids, many of whom had a long history of problems in school, and history of being, getting into trouble. And, uh, and she had already met some of these children and she talked about how much she was looking forward to having them in the classroom. And one kid in particular that she described in, in such a warm way, uh, it was just really striking, I'll never forget it, but it, 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 was, it may have been the first experience that I had where uh, on paper, so to speak, a description of, of a young person, of a 10-year-old boy, was, you know, by and large, fairly negative. And here is somebody who, this professional, this teacher, who is going to have a classroom full of children, uh, was able to talk about the same person in a, in a much different way. And uh, I, I always go back to that as, as sort of, one of the early um, experiences of, of thinking creative, creatively and, and flexibly about uh, about people, about problems, about um, challenges that people go through. So it sounds like in some ways that, that search that you were describing as the basketball coach, how can I be as helpful to these people as I possibly can, that when you met this teacher, you saw something in her that intrigued you that that how could she turn what on paper was a difficult individual into this quite bright warm positive and, and it sounds like that really resonated and tweaked your curiosity yes it absolutely did and and i you know and i worked with her throughout the year so i, I was just sort of immersed in her classroom and, you know just heavily influenced by uh, the, the kind of energy and, and mindset that she brought to uh, to her work and to her classroom. Um, 
and you know, I, I think some other things that that began to shift for me as well is is thinking about my role as, as a basketball coach is, you know, the idea that I, I could have taken the approach of, well, I'm there to tell everyone how to play basketball. I know how to play better than these kids and I'm there to tell them what to do, do this, do that, play this way and not that way. And um, I certainly did a fair amount of that. Yeah. Uh, I, I, but I, I also found myself wanting to hear from them what they thought they could do better or both as individuals, but also as a team. Hmm. And um, yeah, I, I don't, precisely know that I learned that from anyone. I think I was influenced by this, this teacher that sure. I mentioned, but, but uh, you know, for, for many years throughout my 20s while I was coaching, I, I always tried to uh, draw out some ideas and some thoughts that the, my, my players had about, about, well, I guess, first of all, what they, what, what is it about basketball that, that piqued their interest and in, in what they really cared about, but also how they could perform better. And um, I, so I, I really wanted it to be a, a two-way uh, process mm. as opposed to me being the one to just tell them do this and that. So again, it sounds like that, that experience of being with the teacher amplified what was all naturally there for you, which was that curiosity about an individual's experience and, and how they can achieve their potential. And by simply spending time with this this good teacher, that in many ways it helped you notice how she helped people who were being described as difficult to be integrated into mainstream education and to 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 achieve their potential in those environments. And that that yeah, then was yeah. able to cross back then into your conversations with your basketball teams that you trusted. It sounds like you trusted the team uh, that while you were the leader, you weren't always out front. Right. No, I, I felt like trust is a, is a great word uh, to describe how I felt about them. But I, I think it's a it's a it's a word that listeners perhaps should should attached to motivational interviewing you know it's there is a level of trust inherent trust that we have in the for the people that we work with even in the most difficult of circumstances even in the most challenging of settings um you know trust in the other's sense about themselves their their own ideas about themselves and okay. Um, so it sounds like where life saying, might take them. Yeah, so it sounds like you're saying that, that the trust is beyond that when you're working with this person that they're not necessarily going to run away with your wallet. That that's that's, right. a, that's a different. It's a much broader, deeper understanding of the trust in who this individual is and what right. it is this individual has the capacity and potential to be. Right. Exactly. Uh, and and that that stayed with me for many years, both as I would continue to work in educational settings as a, as a special education teacher, uh, and then into my decision to switch to graduate school in psychology, where I first uh, learned about motivational interviewing. Um, it, was, it was more of a passing comment from, from a supervisor who, uh, again, described it in a similar way as, as or in a way that, that resonated with my interest in drawing out ideas from others. Uh, my supervisor 
described um, this approach where uh, where you would ask clients about their uh, their smoking behavior, for instance, uh, in a way that uh, was a very curious, non-judgmental way of, of having a conversation, which was just it was so interesting and, and quite a bit different from some of the methods that I, I was learning in school. Um, and then, and then eventually, you know, a few years, uh, well, I, it, was, it was really the year after I graduated where I took my first uh, motivational interviewing workshop with mm. uh, Kathy Cole, who's a trainer out in the, in the Chapel Hill, North Carolina area. And, uh, and I was hooked. Uh, uh, I was hooked from, from the very beginning, and, and it just all really made sense to me, this, this wonderful method that, that I was learning. She had you an AMI? She did. Oh, for sure. Wow. Uh, without a doubt. Yeah. Without a doubt. Mm. And it's just, that, that's interesting. And I suppose other people might be curious about it as well. Is, but that idea that you were saying that being curious about this individual's addiction and mm -hmm. somehow that, that, that being curious about almost like the relationship they have to smoking or drinking or drugs, which, which was very different from some of the other things that you were learning about how to help someone make changes in their lifestyle or, or health behavior. Right. And I wonder, can you say a wee bit more about what was that, what that difference was for you? Yeah. Well, I, I think a key difference I think was what I, what I was learning in school and what, what may be sort of a natural uh, place that, helpers help people in helping professions might find themselves is that uh the expectation that their role is to learn enough about another person that 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 helper can therefore know what to do for that person and you know if i just do this test or ask these questions in such a way that will lead me to say a a psychiatric diagnosis <clears throat> or it might lead me to <clears throat> understand where their social needs might lie. And, right. and the helper would feel this natural, well-intentioned pull to say, aha, now I know what to do for you. Right. And, and the real distinction for me when I learned about motivational interviewing was uh, it was not the goal wasn't for me to know just enough for me to be able to do something to the other person, but it was to uh, engage this person in, in, in a conversation in such a way that I would that I would learn, but perhaps they would learn as well through that conversation what their own ideas about change might be and how they might go through a change process, whether it was with drugs and alcohol or uh, with, uh, you know, in educational settings or in helping themselves through anxiety treatment. Um, and that was, that was really the, the biggest distinction for me. Yeah, so again, it, it sounds like that shift includes that trusting the other person to be able to navigate their way through this journey, to trust the other person to be able to make a decision about themselves that includes when they are ready to make a change to, in the relationship with a substance or, or another lifestyle behavior, that that your job, your role was simply to help them discover that place for themselves, 
knowing that when they got there they would have many if not all of the ideas about what to do next to help them achieve that success right right and 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 you know success isn't necessarily a linear process either so that they might learn it well from a foundation of a trusting relationship and and one where they are they feel um more able and free to talk about whatever struggles they were experiencing that they could then uh you know make some initial changes and, and come back and kind of wrestle with those uh with those ideas and with those struggles and, and um you know it, it's change isn't always a clean straight line mm. and so also you know having somebody return after seeing them after not having seen them for a period of time and and and, and maybe not have had much success with the change and then how do you how do you respond to somebody who's maybe feeling a bit down or not feeling very successful and, and am I still allows for for uh, for a, a kind of a, a supportive environment that that people might feel a bit uh, more open and safe to to have those failures so to speak right so again that that lovely idea that you know change is not a straight line change is a process it's not an event that you know and i suppose it's in many ways it's recognizing that when we each look at our own lives there's probably things anybody listening to this right now is probably have gone through different stages of moving towards it moving away from it moving across it and that each step has been an important part of their journey in the in the context of everything else that's going on for them and it sounds like that idea that the, the motivation allows us to take that into account when we're meeting people that i love the idea that um that everybody's doing as well as they can and, mm -hmm. and, and i know that 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 takes some time to really get to really trust that individuals who whose lifestyles look problematic who look catastrophic in occasions to be able to still consider this individual for whatever reason this is as well as they can do it right now and right. then the challenge for us as practitioners is to be able to go and meet them in that place with that mindset that that the fact that they're doing anything that the fact that they're living in this way is a form of communication that that, that we need to understand before we try to change them we need to understand why this is currently as well as it can be yeah so that's a really interesting way of, of thinking about this work uh, and thinking about how we approach someone in the various clinical settings that we might uh, have a conversation with someone that is the the idea that that they are they're doing the best they can at this moment and and really trying to, to work hard to accept that uh, that reality and and it strikes me that 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 idea and that concept fits very well with a, a very important uh, part of motivational interviewing specifically the MI spirit and which is something that we will talk about in, in um, sort of an overview way this episode and we'll return in the subsequent episode to talk about in more depth but uh, I wonder Glenn if you'd like to pick up on that and, and 
tell the audience a bit more about the MI spirit. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's, in many ways, it's, it's as, you, as you mentioned the word spirit, I remember, I think it was Bill in, in one of his workshops at one of our conferences t- described it, the spirit as almost like the roots of the tree that is motivational interviewing, that, that this is, it. motivational interviewing grows from this place called the spirit, uh, and in the most recent edition of, of the literature, both Bill and Steve talk about four key elements of what makes up the spirit of motivation to be in. The first is acceptance, a bit like what we were just talking about, that idea of can I as a practitioner accept this person for who they are and with their own rights, so their own worth in their, in their own right. Um, and then alongside of that, then there's what, collaboration or partnership, the notion of as practitioners we work with someone rather than on them um, and compassion um, which we'll, we'll hear a whole lot more about when we talk to Stan but it's that idea that as practitioners we're actively promoting the other person's welfare and the priority is on the other person's needs rather than mine or the agency's and finally then a notion called evocation which in many ways sounds a bit techy, but it's the, the idea of calling out or drawing out and that idea of trusting and believing that the way forward very often already exists within the other person and that the practitioner's job is rather than to instill the way forward, it is to elicit it, draw it out from the person that they can hear themselves, essentially talk themselves into change and the practitioner listens them into change. Right. I, I, I often think for myself and also in, in trainings, try to help people see vocation as, as, a, as the idea that you want to, when at all possible, uh, start with the other person. And that, that's been a helpful concept for me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, at any point in a conversation, uh, I want to know what a person, I want to draw out a person's ideas about what the problem is might be, what some ideas around change might look like, what they think uh, a change plan might, uh, how it might fit Mm. with their everyday life. Uh, As well as um, if I have any advice or feedback for somebody, I also want to, I want to, I want that person to have the last say and, 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 and whatever idea that I might have for them uh, or piece of information that I want to share for them. So the, this notion of evocation kind of runs throughout uh, each and every MI conversation. Right. So in, it, it's not just a case of tell me what's wrong and I sit back, I'm going to fix it for you. It's tell me what's happening, what's that like for you, how have you thought about it, what do you think would work, where do you right. want to go with this? Exactly. That, that and, continuous, and, yeah. continuous journey back to the other person's perspective. Yep. Mm. Yeah, and, and this would be an opportunity for the other person if, if they don't quite understand what you're trying to share with them. If, if you're providing some advice or feedback, uh, they, could, they could ask for some clarification. Sometimes that's an opportunity where they can clarify things for me uh, because I might not fully understand how a, an idea might fit with their life. Right. And, and there have been occasions where I've, I've had a, a wonderfully brilliant idea that I thought was going to 
solve all their their problems. And they uh, mentioned to me, or maybe even reminded me, that whatever that idea might have been didn't quite work for them at, at that point in time right. in their life. And so I would just continue on the process of helping them find a way to change that was more realistic for them at that point. Yeah, and and, and even in that that example, it, you can see the crossover between evocation and collaboration that that you're you're endeavouring to draw out a way forward, or and but you're working alongside of them, recognising that while we as practitioners are focused on a single behaviour, this single behaviour fits in the context of this person's whole life, and they have that insight. So mm-hmm. right. that curiosity here's the idea you're looking at. How does that fit for you? Where do you want to go with that, or how does that sound to you? Um, and that gives them the opportunity to think about that way forward, taking into account everything else that's going on. Exactly. It's a it's a real contrast to perhaps a, a more traditional hierarchy in these professional settings, where you have one expert, uh, namely the physician, the psychologist, the social worker, whoever it might be. And then there's the patient or the client who's there to sort of absorb the wisdom of the expert. In MI and, and, and pertaining to the spirit, it's it's a lot more of a conversation where there are two experts. Hopefully we as professionals have expertise in whatever area of practice we are in. And certainly the client will have expertise on themselves, on their life, on their history, and what change might look like for them. Yeah, again, that, that working together and one of the analogies that, that you used to describe the, the spirit of motivation driven is, is the comparison between wrestling with our clients where our expertise and very often in helping situations, the power that we have, that we have access to resources and that the client may need and that we use that access to resources as a way of almost ensuring that they do what we think they should do because they need this stuff. Um, so we're pushing and pulling and in one direction or another, whereas in motivational viewing, the idea is, is that what if we were to dance? What if we were to enter into a movement in a direction that we, we understand as the experts in our field that will have some benefit for the client, but recognising that it's not necessarily going to take a straight line and that the idea is accepting that first of all it's this person's choice whether they want to dance with us Mm -hmm. and that when we enter into the dance are we have we chosen music that suits the client have we chosen music a dance that the client prefers Um, and are we genuinely interested in that relationship we have with them so that they, we only go in a direction that they feel comfortable with towards the ultimate goal, but recognising that, it, that it, we might dance left and right, back and forward, and after the first or second song, we may not look any closer to the outcome. But often when I'm, when I'm talking to students, I talk, I, I talk about the idea that that my motivation for dance one is dance two. What do I need to do in this first session? What do I need to do in this first dance with this client? So that at the end of it, when I offer them the opportunity, I'd like to offer you another appointment, that they say yes, 
No, not because they have to come back, but because they want to come back. And what we're exploring is what do I need to do in that first session that would enhance the likelihood that the person would want to come back and work with me on this issue. And I mm -hmm. think that's this, the spirit really speaks to that. It's about the, the nature and the essence of the relationship and the four concepts of collaboration, acceptance, evocation and compassion really are, I suppose, guides or concepts or frameworks for the practitioner to, to understand and, and then manifest in their conversations with people. Yeah, yeah. I, I often think of them as, as professional values okay, yeah, nice. that I trying to uphold. Mm. You know, in every conversation I have with someone, I might not be doing motivational interviewing per se right. in a traditional sense with every single conversation I have. However, I strive to uphold these four aspects of the spirit, these four professional values, if you will regardless of the, the nature of the conversation. Yeah, so in some ways it's it's almost like considering that the spirit of motivation and viewing is also the spirit of good helping. It's mm. also the spirit of good relationship with anyone, that we treat right. people with respect and understanding and trying to see things from their point of view, not just our own. Right, right. Yeah. Now, I wanted to ask you something and, and kind of loop back to the this idea that uh, that you shared about approaching someone or meeting someone with an understanding that they're doing the best they can at, yeah. at, at, at that point in time in their life. Uh, I, I know you've you've experienced this in, in training situations, perhaps even experienced it yourself as a, a practitioner. I know I have, uh, which is a bit of this uh, tension or, or a, a, a difficult point to try to reconcile, which is if you are accepting someone for who they are and, and accepting the idea that they're doing the best they can, mm. how, how do you then take that notion with the reality in many instances that someone, uh, someone is, is struggling and someone is looking to change and looking to, to, to a different path for themselves? It, it seems like for some people that's a difficult, uh, two difficult, two ideas that are difficult to sort of merge and, and to kind of balance out. Yeah, yeah. What, what, what do you think? What do you think of that? Yeah, and, and I recognize that, and I think there's a third element to that is where, where where staff or practitioners will often say people are coming and they haven't identified that the issue that they are living with is an issue, but everyone right. else does. And if we're genuinely accepting that this person is doing the best they can, why are we trying to change them at all, even with, with without their permission? Um, and it, and, and it's, it's, a, it's a really it's a really important thing to to step back from and, and think about. And I think it fits with the the spirit of MI, which is that notion of acceptance and recognizing that. This is a concept for the practitioner to understand that it's not it, that can I accept this person for who they are right now, knowing that they are struggling and understanding what sort of person would be struggling with who they are. And more often than not, it's recognizing that someone who's trying to be different. So it's, it's in many ways, it's recognizing that when we meet a client 
who we hear is struggling with something, we're also in the presence of somebody who is, who's working very hard to be a better version of themselves. Mm. And so it's how we treat that person. It's the circumstances that we create within the therapeutic space, I think, is really important. And I think that fits very much with the Rogerian element, that that, that acceptance of this other person is the the ground, the fertile ground where change can germinate if the client chooses to work with us. That, that I love the metaphor that I think it was Rogers used was the potato, that if you put a potato in your vegetable drawer and let it sit for a couple of days, then it sprouts. And just the query is, why does that happen? And it's the idea that, that the potato, by its very essence, is striving to live and to fulfill its potential. And the only thing that can inhibit or enhance the opportunity for that potato to become its own best version is the environment it finds itself in. If it's in the, potato, if it's in the vegetable drawer, it'll live for a while, not have the resources, and then deteriorate and extinguish itself or be extinguished. But take that potato out of that and put it in a different place. It has the potential of growing into potato where it produces five or six pounds of potatoes for the next season. And it's that idea that that's not just true of potatoes. It's the notion that that's true of every living entity. That within every living entity is the spark of life and the the potential to be the best version. And I think that maybe explains why clients come to us with that tension, that they're not happy with the, their current version of themselves. And our job is, I think, that acceptance is to appreciate this person's striving and one of the ways to help them to achieve that for themselves is for us to draw out that evoke, draw out, well, what, why is this an issue for you? What ideas have you got about how to resolve it? So that they hear themselves navigate that journey towards their own best version. But the starting point is, you're already good enough for me to want to be with you. You won't become a better version. You won't become a better person by changing this behavior. Your behaviour will be different, but the who you are has always been good enough. And I think that mm -hmm. fits with that notion of UPR, unconditional positive regard. You don't need to do anything for me to accept you for who you are. And again, I think that's one of the great challenges, uh, certainly a journey for me in my own practice, was getting to a place where I could be with someone who was behaving in a way that didn't fit with my values or potentially society's values and to really work to the place where I recognise this person doesn't need my permission to behave that way, but I do need their permission for them to want to work with me. And that's shifting power and that's shifting uh, relationship. Um, so, again, that's that notion of me seeing the world from this perspective doesn't mean that I'm trying. I'm teaching. I'm telling the client this is the way you're supposed to see it. It's it's recognizing they are struggling, and it's how to help them find a balance or to reduce the struggle for themselves so that they can be as close to peace as possible, being themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it, it, and it's so it's not it's not necessarily saying that you agree with their choices or agree with their specific behaviors. Sure. And in fact, it's, it's acknowledging that your role isn't even one where 
agreeing or endorsing their behavior is is even relevant. Sure. You know, you're, you're not their parent. Sure. Uh, and and so so it's it's the idea, or, or I, I guess to go back to the to the potato example, um, the goal isn't to try to you know disassemble the potato or to make the potato into something that it's not, sure. and to sort of reject it. Uh, it's to to try to understand what is the best, what is the environment in which this potato is most likely to to blossom and to and change. Yeah. And and the idea that you are accepting someone for who they are unconditionally is is part of creating an environment that actually would make it more likely for them to consider changes in their life. Again, regardless of the context that you're discussing. Yeah, yeah, and even that idea that I'm not their parent, it's it's recognizing how many times did our parents tell us what to do and we didn't do it. So even yeah. even having someone as a, as an important as important as a parent in our lives doesn't mean that we follow their path. And more right. often than not, there's, there comes a point in our lives where we don't want our parents to be telling us how we should be living. We want them to support yeah. us, navigate that for ourselves. And, and again, it's not that we can't make the potato grow any faster than it's, that, than it's current, currently able to. But whatever stage of its development it's at, we meet, that, we meet it there and consider the point you made there is, what does it need now? At this point along this journey, what could I be doing that would be most useful for this individual to take the next step? And certainly that even that idea of the next step, that I, it's, I think we, we often feel that pressure as practitioners is to get someone to haven't produced their full potential, whereas it's much more, I think, compassionate towards the self and towards the client, which is, what if I didn't try to get you to the end of the journey today? What if I explored what the next step would be? Mm. Um, so that it's manageable, it's achievable, and that people have the opportunity to build on the success, the, the inches rather than the miles of the journey. Right, yeah, the, each step along the way. Yeah. Well, so what do you think? I, I, it, it feels like we've covered some really important ground uh, today and, mm. and hit some of the some of the sort of main parts, certainly of the MI spirit. There, there's lots more to discuss about motivational interviewing, other terms and, and concepts, but uh, it, it does feel right to, to start with the MI spirit, at, at least to introduce that, that notion for the audience. And you know, certainly there's other concepts that we'll explore in, in, in future episodes, but it uh, feels pretty good what, what we've done so far, huh? Yeah, I've really enjoyed today. As always, having a good chat with you and just thinking about things that are important to us and and uh, just sharing some ideas for ourselves and with with the audience right and and so speaking of the audience they possible that the audience would want to contact us or maybe have some questions or suggestions for us how might they reach out to us so, so we're always keen to hear from anybody that's listening and so if you have any questions about anything that you've heard today or any of the future podcasts uh that you want to query or you want to send in questions in advance of any of the future podcasts that you want some of our guests to answer or myself and Seb to answer, you can contact us by emailing podcast at glennhines.com. So podcast at glenn, G-L-E-N-N, H-I for India, N-D-S, all one word, dot com. Podcast at glennhines.com. Well, Glenn, 
time for uh, time to wrap things up. Seb, as always, it's good to see you and uh, look forward to talking to you soon. Thank you, Glenn, and, and great to, to be with everyone listening. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.